Uh, if you've got a Bible, let's uh, go ahead and turn to James chapter 4 together this morning. We're going to be looking at James chapter 4 verses 1 through 10. And we've got it up there on the screen for you, just in case you need that as well. James writing to the church, he asks him, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be afraid of the world, a friend of the world, makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Uh, the weather is a little colder right now, this time of year, and I find myself oftentimes walking into places like walking into my house, walking into like a shop or something, and where it's really cold outside, it's really warm, and I walk in the shop, and immediately my glasses fog up. It's really annoying. Um, and, you know, it takes a little while for the, the you know, so I, you know, I'm, I'm glad to be in where it's warm, but then I'm like, oh, I can't see anything. Uh, it's not as bad as the dishwasher fog up or the oven opening fog up. Those are the worst, man. Those never go away. Uh, the shower fog ups are pretty bad. Um, I, no, I don't wear my glasses in the shower. You guys aren't listening to anything I'm saying. That was a test. Um, the, uh, I've already lost you this early in. Um, but I was walking into a coffee shop with the other pastors a few weeks ago, and it was really cold outside. I walked in, and uh, uh, my glasses fog up right away, and the, the person taking the order is like right there at a counter right when you walk in. So I walk in, and she was like, hey, can I help you? And I was just like, I, I can't, you know. I was like, sorry, my glasses are fogged up. And she's like, yeah, it's been happening to people all day. And then because I'm like weird, I was like, uh, uh, yeah, did you just like think the first time it was like a romantic thing, you know? And she's like, what? And so that's pretty much what it's like to be me. Um, I, uh, there's this sense that when you, when you walk in to a, to a room, to a place, sometimes it just feels very different than when you're like where you just were, you know? It happens a lot with like temperature and stuff. But sometimes um, you just walk into a room or something and it feels differently and it has nothing to do with the temperature. It just has to do with what's going on in that place. Um, a lot of times, uh, families can be like this. Households can be like this, right? You might, you might come home one day, and uh, you can just tell that it's not a good day today, you know, and you've walked in. And uh, you, you, might, you might walk into a, to a gathered sort of group of people, and there's just like this sense of like warmness, and everybody's really happy and positive, or there might be times where you walk in, and you can sense kind of tension or whatever. Um, that, that happens a lot of times depending on things that, are, that we sort of walk into. Um, a lot of times you walk in and, or you go see your family even, and there is some tension because people have been, have been fighting. And, uh, you know, if you are a part of a family, then you know that inevitably there's going to be conflict there. Uh, 
you know, some families, it's like all the time. They're just fighting like wild animals all the time. Like no hesitation, no filter, just like we're going at it all the time. Some families, it's like professional wrestlers. There's just like tons of drama, tons of threats, a lot of pacing back and forth. Like, oh, you better watch out when I get to you. Like, well, when this happens, oh, you better, oh, oh this is going to, I'm going to end you, you know. Uh, and then, but then nothing happens, you know. Uh, and then there's some families where like they fight a lot, but it's like super below the surface, you know, it's like diabolical and psychological and uh, they just like, it's passive aggressive and, uh, and there are some families where they never have conflict, they never have disagreement, but that's not necessarily a good thing, right? It's because maybe they have no idea how to like talk about how they're feeling or everything just gets like crammed into these little spaces and they think it never exists anymore and it goes, it's going to go away, but it doesn't, right? In fact, like we expect that people are going to have a certain amount of conflict if they're going to be in a relationship together. That's, that's actually a part of just being real and really being close to each other. Uh, if the church is in many ways like a family, you're going to see the same thing. Uh, in a group of people like in a church body, right? You're going to see uh, a sense of, you know, the more we get to know each other, the more we live life together, the more there's this potential that we're going to have conflict. We're going to disagree with each other. Um, and uh, just like a, if a couple were getting married and they're being counseled and it's like, you've never disagreed. You've like never had a fight. Uh, okay, maybe you should have at least one. I don't know. You know, it'd be good to know that you know how to do that. Um, uh, you know, although it's a red flag if all you ever do is fight. Um, in the same way, it's not uh, necessarily a bad thing when there is conflict within a church family. Because, like I said, that's a part of being a family, right? Is that you're not always going to agree on things. The question is really more, how does your conflict, like in any other family, like in any other relationship, how does it get handled? Like, what do you do about it? And the way that it gets handled often affects the feeling of that, of, of, like the tone and the, and the feeling when you walk in the room of that place. James uh, is writing to the church and he's writing about this specific thing that we just read because instead of walking into many of these early churches and feeling the sense of, of love and of unity and of sort of graciousness with one another, he's walking into many of these churches and he is feeling something totally different. It's like palatable. You can tell because he just, he, he jumps right onto this issue and, and he just immediately addresses fights and quarrels among the people of the church. He never once points out a specific thing that they're fighting about, because they're not just fighting about one thing. They're fighting about a ton of different things. But the way that they're handling these things is so unhealthy, and it's become such a big deal that he has to address it, because instead of the church being a place that you walk into and say, this is a good family, it's become a place that people would walk into and say, there's some resentment here, there's some gossip here, there's some different groups that seem to be kind of like like against each other maybe. I'm, I'm hearing the whispers and I'm seeing the glances and, oh, you know, there's always the, the backstories and the baggage and all that stuff because of these things that are happening. And so his response to it is, is, is James talking to the church about the huge, huge mistake of taking their faith and then bringing in these issues of the world, of worldliness, the name of the message this morning is The Perfect Storm. And the reason it's called that is because uh, 
while the church should be a place where if, every, if, like, if everybody outside the church was just walking around with weapons all day, like we all had a weapon and we were just trying to harm each other, and whenever we were like upset, it was just like, okay, here it goes, right? We're going to throw down. The church should be the place where we kind of put those things down and, and we say, we are, uh, we are experiencing unity here together, right? That, that, that our faith should give us the way to do that. Instead... When you bring in the world and you mix it with religion, what you get is instead of no weapon, you get handed a much, much bigger weapon that can cause a lot more damage. And this is what James is dealing with and addressing. You take one conflict, you add God, and it becomes the perfect storm. It's like throwing fuel on a fire. So we're going to talk about like where this thing comes from, like basically where it all starts how this thing explodes and how you can actually survive this thing when it happens. The first is where it starts. James is really clear. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? It is your passions, it is your desires, it is that you desire things that you cannot have. Now, uh, as scholars have studied this passage and this book, they have almost unanimously agreed that James is talking about a lot of different kinds of desires and passions, but it's not just physical pleasures that we want, which is what we think about, or, or just wanting something that your neighbor has that you're jealous of. There's, there's, there's things that the people of the church want, and they're not getting them. And that's at the heart of this disunity. The first is there's this group of people that just desire physical things that other people have. They covet these things. They wish that they had the wealth. They wish that they had uh, the, the position or the authority. They wish that they even had uh, some of the respect and some of the control that people have. We'll come to see here. Now, what had happened was certain teachers had come into the fellowship, just as they had in the Jewish culture before this, and they had begun teaching and they had gained uh, notoriety. It's why over the last few weeks, we've been talking about this issue. He started by talking about how, how a teacher, how the tongue can steer something like a big ship, right? Like this small thing, like an udder can steer a ship. A speaker, a teacher can steer a whole group of people. And so we have to be careful about what we say. And we talked last week about wisdom, right? And that, and that these people can come in and they have eloquent words and they seem to have lots of wisdom in terms of like the world's wisdom. It, it makes me feel like if I do what they say, I'm going to live a pretty good life and things are going to go pretty well for me. But still, James is kind of saying, don't listen to these people. Now we're on to the, the, the fights that they're causing. Because all of these different teachers have come within the early church, just like they have in the Jewish community, and they've taught things, and each time they teach something that's like a perversion of the gospel, they either add something to it, or sometimes better yet, it seems uh, to a lot of these people, they take something away from it that they didn't want to deal with anyway. They're like, hey, guess what? I've got something even better. Jesus, he didn't really want you to do this thing. Good, I didn't like doing it anyway. I like you, and I'm going to listen to your teaching. And this is what happened. One of these was a philosophy that encouraged people to pursue status and sort of material wealth in the same way that it was taught by society. The idea was, if you're maturing in your faith, then you're going to grow in your status in society. Yes, I know people don't respect you. Yes, I know they ridicule you. But uh, God wants you 
to be wealthy. God wants you to be respected. God wants you to be uh, recognized. He, he doesn't intend for you to be stuck in the place that you're in forever. In fact, he wants to show everybody what he can do in your life. He wants the people outside the church with their own values and everything to see the value of what's going on here inside the church. And, and so these teachers would come in and they would teach them that. And, and they, they would essentially say, in fact, uh, many of you who were pursuing those things before you came to Jesus, then you heard this thing about denying yourself and, 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 and not making that the biggest priority in your life, being okay with people thinking badly of you for your faith because you, of your allegiance to Jesus. Uh, you now don't have to worry about that stuff anymore because, in fact, what God wants you to do is he wants you to do the very thing you want to do anyway, right? Well, that's a pretty good message, right? So people came in and they were teaching this thing. They say, God actually wants for you to make as much money as you can. He wants for you to show everyone else you're more important now. He wants you also to give in to some of the desires that you have. Pleasures aren't as bad as some of these people have been making them seem. You know, don't listen to them. God wants you to be happy and to experience pleasure and and to live a full life. And so uh, he wants other people to look at you in your life and say, I want that. And so it's okay to do these things, to follow these pleasures and to be driven by these desires. God gave you these desires. He wants you to be completely driven by them. That's okay. People love this. There's this sense that can happen where you expect something to involve sacrifice. And so you begin doing that. And then someone can come along and tell you, hey, wait a second. It's actually doesn't involve that at all. How appealing is that? Uh, yesterday, we finished, uh, we went outside and we were doing some stuff with our kids and, and then it hailed on us and everything and it got cold and we got tired and we came in, we're like, all right, I feel like we've been active enough. Now we can just be super lazy for the rest of the day. We don't have to feel bad. And so it was the one day that we can like play video games if we want to. So, so Tegan and I sit down and we uh, like got this video game, we start playing it. And I'm thinking to myself, this is exactly what I wanna be doing right now. This is like, exactly what I would like to be doing right now. Doesn't always, doesn't always happen when you're a parent. Uh, most of the time, I would say, you're doing exactly what you wanna be doing when you're taking care of your kids. But this time, they overlapped, and I was like, this is great, right? This is awesome. Now, if I made the mistake of going, uh, so being a parent from this point on is, if I do whatever I want, that's what they need, right? Uh, well, it sure would be nice if that's how it worked, That would be a whole different experience moving forward. This was what it was like when people would come into the church and they would say, hey, guess what? You get to do what you want now, and it's actually what God wants you to do. Well, that's good. And so their desires were to have uh, some of these positions and some of the status. Another group of people that came in would would speak to the idea of power and authority and, and, and popularity within the church. People wanted to have power. They wanted to have authority. They wanted to be some of the ones that decided the culture of the church. There was a constant sort of back and forth between the Jewish people who were the religious people brought up in the faith, who were used to the traditions and valued those things and the law. And then there was this group of people, the Gentiles, who didn't have that background. And and, uh, and these people saw these people as legalistic and the Jews would see the Gentiles as being inferior because they just couldn't be moral and disciplined enough. They weren't really God's people. And so there was a desire in the church to have your group, your culture kind of win out, right? Uh, And to be able to sort of be be the ones. And and a lot of times that was you wanting to have that authority yourself. 
This allowed false beliefs to sort of flourish in the church. Old prejudices could exist and thrive within the church where people had once sought to get past those things. Some people were showing favoritism, others were exploiting the poor, and there were still people loyal to the gospel who understood this threat, and, uh, and these people would, would sort of react against these false teachers and their false wisdom. And so uh, it starts with just simply a desire. And what it doesn't start with, and he doesn't say anywhere here, is he doesn't say it starts with what God wants. He starts with it's what we want. So, so th- these fights and quarrels among you, what's causing them? You care about what I care about. You care about what I want. You're standing up for me. You're fighting for me. No, he says, what causes these things? You want stuff, right? You have desires that are unmet and unsatisfied. And it's causing you to get into conflicts with each other. And why is it important that he says that? Because of what happens next. It starts with desire, and then you get to being angry. And anger, especially when you encounter it uh, in, in, in an environment like in religion, is, is like directly tied to the idea of, of the word should, okay? It's, it's how things should be. So you get angry most of the time because you think things should be a certain way or you should have a certain thing and it's not that way. So people in the church go from wanting something to now being mad that they can't have it. I don't have the position, the authority I want. I don't have the possessions I want. I don't have the status I want. I don't have the control that I want. I don't have things going the way that I want. And so now I don't just want something and I'm pursuing it. I'm angry because it's not the way it should be. There's something keeping me from that thing. I feel bitterness, I feel resentment. And anger is focused at people. Well, I'm angry about this thing, but who, 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 who? Them, you. That's who my anger is focused on. And so it started with desire, and then it gives, uh, it sort of grows into anger. Anger that, uh, that he refers to even as murder. He says you want things and you can't have them, and so you fight and quarrel. You murder, right? Now, uh, when he's talking about murder here, this is uh, the language that, that Jesus would use, that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, you know, you say that murder is a sin. Any of you that hates your neighbor in his heart has, has killed them, has murdered them. Jesus talks about lust in the Sermon on the Mount, and here they talk about having these lusts in your heart. Again, it's that same thing that Jesus is talking about. Jesus says it's not just adultery that's, that's the sin here. It's that there's lust in your heart, a desire for something that's unholy. And James is talking about the same thing. These lusts, these desires are causing you now to get angry. And in your anger, you just wish people were gone, right? Because that's, that is this anger that, that kills. It is an anger that says, you're in the way of what I want, or you represent the opposite of what I want, and I just wish that you would go away so that I could have this thing that I desire, Anger is a very revealing thing, right? What are the things that we get angry about? What are the things that we get frustrated about? It says a lot about us. It says a lot about what we care about. If we're arrogant and religious, then we think our anger is always God's anger. And it's just because we're so holy and awesome that we get angry about things, whereas everyone else is just a jerk, right? 
There's a difference between having a conviction for something and getting angry about something. And the moment that this begins to happen, we should definitely turn and run the other way. If, if we begin to get angry at, at people within the community, we know that there's something going on that's not good, that this is not a sign of something good, but it, because it, it progresses, it goes from desire to angry, and now it's personal. Now the gloves come off, because you're not just going to go away. You're not just going to change your mind and, and not care. So now we fight. Now it's personal. Now you really do. Now you really are in the way of the thing that I want. And this is what's happening in the church. One group against another group. One person against another person. And so you gather with your group of people and you, you know, would talk and, and you would have these fights and quarrels. This, this word for quarrel, if you look it up, uh, it's a protracted and drawn out conflict. This is like a campaign in, in a war. This is not just one fight. This is fight after fight after fight. It's spread out over a long time, right? You lose one, you're like, it's okay, I'll come back, I'll win the next one. You win the next one. Oh, you won the battle, but you haven't won the war, right? Because this is personal, and I'm going to win. Because what I want, what I want for this community, for, for myself in this community, what I want to achieve as a believer, the, even the ideas, the beliefs, the priorities that we have, the things that we're about, the things that I'm trying to be about as I'm living for God, I'm fighting for those things, and you're not going to get in the way of them. And so the church is filled with these fights, this idea that, that if, if they win, then I will lose. So it's gone from me just desiring something to, now it's changed in my mind, now it's adversarial, now it's, if you win, if that group wins, then I will lose. I won't get what I want, I won't get this thing that I care about. So at this point, it's still just fights and quarrels. But then you add the explosive component. You take the world, the worldliness that James calls this. He says, all this stuff is, is just you uh, giving into worldliness. He says, you're, 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 you're going back to these desires, these pleasures, these passions that you had before, and you're justifying them. And because of it, obviously, it's making a mess of things. Now, the idea is that when that happens, maybe, that you would bring God into it, and then it would get better, right? You'd bring God into it, and you'd be like, oh, I see how wrong this is, or oh, God wants us to love each other and be united, right? Uh, just like uh, if two kids are fighting, and they come to their parents, and they're like, you know, oh, they're like screaming at them and different things. The parents aren't going to like pick one kid and, and go, well, they had it coming, you know? So like, no, they're going to go, just stop. Let's, let's, let's love each other, let's care about each other. So you think, yeah, yeah, bringing God in is good, but that's not true in this case because what actually makes this the perfect storm is adding religion to it. Because the way that it grows, we see how it starts, the way that it grows is first, well, God's on my side, right? I mean, yeah, we, let's, bring God, yeah let's bring God into this, right? This is about him to begin with. This isn't me, this is what he cares about. Right? This isn't my passions, these are his passions, right? And he's on my side, okay? I mean, I know, I know the guy. He is on my side. He would not want what you want. I just can't believe or understand that in any way. 
Now, most people involved in this kind of quarreling won't think directly to include God in it. They will just presume that what they want is what God wants, and so I don't even need to really ask him. He's like, no, no, you're good. Don't go, go on your own. You don't need me, right? You're doing fine on your own. That's, that's how some people will think. And, and, but then there are those who, uh, James talks about this. He says, he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. So it's like you're asking God. You're actually coming to him, and you're saying, God, give me this thing that I want, let me win. Let me prevail. Let me have it. It's like, yeah, God's not giving it to you because he knows that the reason you want it isn't actually for him. It's not actually for his kingdom. It's not actually for noble purposes or anything spiritual at all. It's your desires and you want to spend this thing on yourself. So, so, so we would actually go to God you know, pray to God, God, oh, help me. Like, this is such a bad situation. This, this person that I'm fighting against or this thing that I just cannot have. I know you want me to have it. I know this is your desire. I know this is the way you intend for things to be. I know that I'm the person that you want everyone to be. And so what I want is a good thing. God, give it to me. And James is saying, God isn't going to give it to you because now what you're doing is you're mixing worldliness and godliness. You're taking two things that don't go together. They're oil and water, and you're putting them together. God, in his infinite wisdom, knows that bringing this to a person would mean a heart change. It would mean conviction. It would mean humiliation. Many of us know this. That's why we don't talk to God about things. We know he could just change my heart. It's going to convict me. I can't do it. I can't get the words out with like a straight face, right? I mean, you could only pray about an enemy for so long before sometimes, you know, for, for many of us before you're like, okay, I, I forgot God doesn't hate this person as much as I do. You want things, but you'll only use these to have independence from the giver. You want authority, but it's not because you really care about the right thing. It's because you want your way. And that's what you think authority is. You want to be known. You want to be respected. You want to be accomplished. But what would you do with those things? One of the groups that was causing the biggest amount of strife was the, uh, the zealots. And this is a good example of how far this goes. Because... Um, you, you begin to believe it grows because you believe like this is now what God wants. God is on my side. The next step even past this is, and because God's on my side and, and what I want is good, then the end justifies the means. That means that no matter how big the fight is, no matter how messy things get, no matter how mean the things are that I say, no matter how much I might hate my brother or sister in the church, the end justifies the means because God wants me to win. I have to win. I have to prevail for him. I have to get the things that I want. The zealots were a group of people um, who uh, were kind of this, it was this faction within the Jewish community. They were sort of a revolutionary group and they, they had been around and, and, and they wanted to see uh, one of the big things they wanted was for the Jewish faith and the temple to not be ruled by the wealthy and the rich and the influential in, in sort of the Roman Empire and in the empire around. So they would do all kinds of stuff. They'd come in, they'd get people riled up. They'd say, come on, let's overtake this thing. Let's, let's represent the little guy, right? Well, one of their favorite things to do was they would get enough people together. They'd get enough popular opinion that they would actually vote out the, the, the chief priest 
um, and, uh, and they would replace them with an uh, illiterate and poor person. And they'd be like, huh, deal with that. That's what we want, right? Not probably a great idea to go like the illiterate route because you'd probably want them to be able to read. But uh, they just, they went in and they wanted to change the way that things were. They didn't like the system currently. They especially didn't like any way in which the Jewish people, the Jewish church ever was really even getting along with the Roman Empire. So uh, this idea of zeal, we're going to talk about it a lot more probably in a few months when we begin looking. We're going we're gonna to do, we're going to go through the book of Acts um, after this. And, and when we look at Paul, right, it says Paul's one who has zeal, right? That's a specific group of people. The people who had zeal were the people who, who believed that God had charged them with keeping the church pure. And that the purity of the church is so important. And they could point to examples in the Bible where people did extreme things and it says God granted, them, granted it to them as righteousness. He declared them righteous because they did these things. If you stand up for the purity of this group of people in God's name, even willing to kill others, that's why Paul was standing there watching Stephen be stoned. That's why the Jewish leaders were actually condoning the killing of Christians was because the zealots believed the end justifies the means because God wants us to keep this group, the Jewish faith at the time, and now into the early church it would come. He wants us to keep it pure so badly. Wouldn't he expect us to be willing to do anything? Because the cause is so great. You see, when this perfect storm grows and grows, uh, the damage and the destruction is great. There, there were likely situations when people did kill each other in the early church. These people claiming to have zeal and doing it, saying, we're doing this as a way of protecting the purity of what we have. These people were like the Jack Bowers of the faith. They were like the ultimate utilitarians. Whatever it takes, we have to do it, right? Jack Bauer, it's like you've got us, the atom bombs, the nuclear bombs going off in 24 hours, whatever it takes, run over that school of baby ducks in the middle of the road, it doesn't matter. You've got to do it, the end justifies the means, and then you die a little bit each, each time inside, Jack Bauer, but you're the only guy who's tough enough to do it, right? That's how the zealots viewed themselves. Whatever it takes, no one else is brave as us. And this tore apart communities. The Jewish people, the temple, it tore apart the early church. The same idea of whatever it takes religion is often associated with the extreme things that we are often arguing about and debating about or the reasons why we want to be the group that is the one that is in control at any given time, like the Jews and Gentiles dealt with. God's response is uh, is basically... uh, no, I don't think that you want me in this because uh, you have become a friend of the world. You, if you weren't, you would not be quarreling with your brother in this way or your sister. One of the things I've learned is that um, if Ellie and I are disagreeing about something, just don't ask people what they think because people will usually take Ellie's side. And... I think what they do, I think they do it because I'm, I'm like such a superior arguer. I'm just like, I've, I'm, I'm a better arguer. And so they're like, he doesn't need any help. He's fine on his own. She probably needs some help. So I'm going to take her side. Because really without even like getting the facts out or the topic of it, they're usually like, I'm probably, Ellie's probably right, you know. 
So I just, I don't ask, I don't bring anybody into it anymore. I've learned that doesn't really go well for me. You know, if I, if I would ever like talk to my parents about things that were going on, I just knew my, I could, in my mom's eyes, I could do no wrong. Okay, so, so, so I bring her in, it's like, you are right, right? My dad, on the other hand, is like, his response to literally everything is some form of like, well, it sounds like if you had uh, probably just thought a little bit more, maybe tried harder, maybe next time, if you can just keep your eyes open when that car's speeding at you and you're crossing the street, then you can jump over it or something. It sounds like you're probably being disrespectful or not uh, maybe responsible, and somehow that's what led to that, you know? That's like always how my dad would take it. So, you know, you have these situations, you like, you, 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 you try to bring somebody in to kind of like fix this thing that's going on to kind of mediate what's going on. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh no, I wish I hadn't brought them into this, right? I wish I could back out as fast as I can. Some people feel that way about counseling. They're like, oh, I'm right. They'll see. And then you go in and you're like, oh no, what? What's happening? How do I get out of here? Right? What have I done? What have I done? Right? So, so they, they, James is coming in and he's like, oh, I can tell you guys how God feels about what you're doing right now. This is, this is terrible. This is oil and water. These two things don't mix. You are not arguing for him. You are not justifying what you're doing. Uh, what you're doing is distorting everything that he intends for this. God is not what's fueling this and your humble service of him. It is your pride. You guys have a high view of yourselves and you think that even your desires and your pleasures are, are okay. Like, almost like there's nothing that I could want that isn't ultimately probably good. And it's your arrogance that's causing you to believe that that's how God feels as well. Perhaps the only thing that is Worse than a love for the world is to mix this love with religion. Because this is like pouring gasoline on the fire. And it happens in the church. It happens and James sees it happening there. And he says the solution is not let's prove you right, you wrong, and then it will all go away. What's causing these fights and these quarrels amongst you isn't even this teacher or that teacher or this teacher. It is you guys and your pleasures and your desires that you have. And so the only way out to this, James is really direct. He does not beat around the bush. He doesn't try to find valid points in in either thing, one or another. Nope. He just is very direct. He says, oh yeah, this is the last thing too. It's basically the end justifies the means. And the result of that is I'm a crusader. I am now fighting for what I want. I'm now fighting for this pleasure. Taking what I want has now become a holy act, right? So, so uh, this is something that God wants for me to do. And by, by, by getting it, by receiving it, I'm making him happy. He goes on and he says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's this simple. How do you survive this perfect storm? Number one, you submit, you stop right now, and you say, okay, God, you're in charge. This word for submit is a word that's used in military battles and and in government situations. It is the idea that there is a general on the field and you submit to that person. He says, okay, fine, you're fighting for me, you're fighting my war, great. I'm in charge, let's agree, now submit to me. Whatever I tell you to do, you do that thing and you're gonna do it in my name. I'm not going to submit to you, and I'm not going to make them submit to you. 
And the answer is not that they need to submit. The answer is you must submit. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So God's first thing after you've submitted to him, okay, you're submitting, you're ready for my orders, you're ready to fight for me now, draw near to me. Whatever these pleasures, these desires, these things are that you're just being eaten up by the fact that you can't have them, you haven't achieved them, there's something in the way. Draw near to me because I am what you need, not any of these things. Whatever it is that you think that is going on with the world or the church or the wrong kind of people that are ruining it for everybody or whatever it is, right? Uh, You don't actually need that to get fixed in order to be okay. You need me. And the reason that you're caught up in all of this is that you've lost sight of me. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. James says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Talk to him. Reach out to him. Say, God, I want you to be a part of this. And he will draw near to you. He will not hide his face from you. He will not not, uh, avoid you. He will be there. He will draw near to you. And then what you do is you say sorry. That's it. This is not they say sorry. This is not uh, you're right. You deserve this thing and you should be bitter, resentful, and angry because you can't have it. This is say sorry. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. That's pretty direct. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's saying the things that you have done, say I'm sorry. It doesn't matter what I've been fighting for what my desires have been, what I've been pursuing, how important I think it is, I shouldn't have done what I did when I fought with you, when I quarreled with you. Whatever this thing is that I want, I need to purify my heart and I need to be single-minded again. What's causing this chaos is my attempt to, to get both what I want from the world and what God wants. And he says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's awesome, right? Thanks. Thanks, James. Let's all go do that. To be wretched. Wretched is, uh, is, is what describes a person's circumstances. So you drive by somebody on the road. They have no home. They're sick. They're destitute. They're poor. They have no money, anything Uh, They're filthy. You say that is a wretched set of circumstances. That is a wretched person. He says, he says, be wretched. Recognize that uh, whatever this situation is that you're in, that you're not actually, he says, he says, you're mourning and you're weeping. Your laughter is turning to joy. Whatever, uh, whatever good comes from this division that you're experiencing, because this is sadly what we've learned about the way people work, right? What is the best way to band a group of people together? Find a common enemy, right? You, you, kind of, you, kind of, you kind of get everybody against something. Or you just get a couple of your friends against another one of your friends, right? They give you something to talk about all day. And one of the first things that happens uh, that, that wisdom brings is self-awareness. We talked about wisdom last week, kind of an understanding of yourself and relationships with others. Self-awareness. One of the first things that happens when you're self-aware is you realize that one of the reasons you put other people down so much is because it makes you feel better about yourself. 
it's a whole lot easier to put other people down than to actually just focus on myself. And so we, we band together, we kind of group together. That was what happened in the church. It wasn't just individuals fighting. It was almost always groups of people who had kind of clustered off together and were against one another. And whatever laughter and joy and good things that you think has come from this community that you have, when I, James, walk in, I don't experience that kind of community. He says, I, I see these things that you need to repent of, even some of the joy that you're taking from it. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Ultimately, what he's talking about here is an environment in which a person would walk in and they would sense unity. They would sense real, deep unity. And it's not because everyone's the same, because uh, the description of the early church is a diverse group of people who are unified by a few common things. And those things are so significant that they define that group, not all their differences. Uh, I said that we're going to be uh, going through a series in Acts in, uh, in, uh, when we're done with James, but right before that, we're doing an even shorter series on this idea of unity and looking at Ephesians. We're going to be talking about why the New Testament authors tell the early church, why God tells his church that unity is so important to them. And it's because of this kind of thing, really. And the challenge is, I think, personally, that the longer you're a part of community, the harder this gets. Because the more you feel that it belongs to you. Whether it's because you've grown up in the church, whether you've been a part of this church for a long time, or whether you just feel like you, uh, you, this is your thing. When that's the case, then it's mine to protect it's mine to defend, and, and it's mine to discern what's right and wrong. Or, I'm so good now that whatever I desire, whatever I want, whatever urgency I have, whatever sits, doesn't sit well with me, that must be an indication that it's from God because of the kind of person that he's made me into. Even those that are in leadership are called to be the most teachable, the most open before the Lord. They're not called to be in leadership as a way of God saying, now be you, you just be you, forever, till you die. It's now you submit to me and listen to me and care about my things and not the things of this world. As we, as we worship, as we reflect on this, I think there is no better thing to reflect upon than simply the desires that we have. The things that make us discontent and angry. The things that bring about strife within our own body if we're ever a part of that. And maybe you feel like, listen, I, I really don't have that. I don't, I don't have conflict with people. I don't, I don't get worked up about too many things. Uh, and, and, and to you, I would say, what are the, the, the desire and the passion, the things that it is easy that if someone comes in and says, hey, by the way, now you can do this. Now you don't have to worry about that thing. That's the message that I'm waiting for. That's the one that I respond to. Because ultimately where that leads is away from unity and towards your own thing.